Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver, and this is my monthly podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. And we have a very interesting guest with us today, Dr. Robert Pearl, who's a physician and the former executive director and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. The Permanente Medical Group is responsible for the care of almost 5 million Kaiser Permanente members in California, Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. And Dr. Pearl is joining us today to talk about his new book, which I had a chance to read over the last week or two, and it's fantastic. It's called Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. Um, Atul Gawande, who probably needs no introduction, uh, said uh, on the book cover that this is a timely and necessary book on how to fix our broken healthcare system, and it's from one of the most important voices in healthcare. So I am delighted to welcome Dr. Robert Pearl. Welcome, Robbie. Thank you very much, Pat. And first of all, I just want to thank, I want to congratulate you on, on your book and thank you for taking time to join us today and to help share your insights with our audience. I think your book is a, a must read for anyone who's trying to sort out how did we get into this mess in the first place and who's wondering what on earth we're going to do to get out of it. So right now, everyone's focused on healthcare coverage. What should healthcare coverage look like in this country? But as you point out and make so clear in your book, that it's really the astronomical costs of care in the U.S. that have to be addressed if we're ever going to get to rational coverage, because we can keep spending and spending and spending, and eventually there's not enough money to provide coverage no matter what country you are. So you had a, a marvelous chapter that I wanted to start with, um, although it's about in the middle of your book, called Legacy Players, and you write about four huge powerful, multi-billion dollar organizations that have vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So, Robbie, can you tell us, who are these legacy players and what are some of the ways they help to dig the hole we're in? Sure. Well, as you say, Pat, uh, healthcare costs are huge and they're rising more rapidly than our ability to pay. We spend 18% of our GDP, almost one-fifth of every dollar that we use for goods and services in the U.S. on healthcare, and that rate's going up right now twice as fast as GDP. And we're on a path to spend one in three dollars in the future. It's just not possible, regardless of how coverage is provided, if we don't change the delivery system. And at the federal level, today the U.S. government spends close to 40% of its tax revenue on healthcare, and there's 10,000 baby boomers becoming Medicare eligible every day, and it's going to exceed half of the government spending over that same future time period. It's not possible. And as you know, it's the legacy players who have benefited the most. These are the insurance companies, the hospital systems, the physician specialty groups, but most importantly today, the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry has grown more rapidly and more profitably than any other sector of our economy, including high tech. The cost of drugs today are rising six times faster than our ability to pay. And as a nation, we now spend almost as much on drugs as hospitals with little to show. Now, how do they do it? They do it in three ways. They do it by buying companies and creating monopoly. 
They do it by using patent protection. I mean, remember, the patents were created for the greater good of everyone. And companies now understand that if they have a patent, they can charge whatever they want, whatever the consequences, and people have no choice to pay. And then finally, the direct-to-consumer advertising. So what we're seeing today is that the legacy players are invested. They're not going to want to see change happen. And if change happens, it's going to have to happen because someone is going to force them to do things that they otherwise would rather not do. And so, and so Robbie, what I don't understand is actually how we're going to get there because these legacy pro players, I mean, pharmaceutical clearly is a problem. And ever since EpiPen, I don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't know that, uh, you know, we're paying way too much for drugs. But there's been so much consolidation on the health plan side that we have a similar problem there. Maybe, maybe not as many dollars, but a similar problem. And, and yet, when we look to what's going on in Washington, D.C., people are coming up with solutions that are so tiny, or even the health plans talking about, you know, let's, let's go and retrospectively deny emergency claims. I'm actually seeing that uh, popping up. So how, how, are we, how are we going to take on these legacy players? What do you think um, it, it's going to take for us to be able to make a difference in going from where we are now to where we need to be? So I wrote the book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong, for several reasons. One of which is I talk about the death of my father. So it's a very personal book. But it also had a or has a roadmap to the future, one based upon four pillars. But to understand the four pillars, you have to go back to a fundamental set of issues, particularly. When we look at the performance of the United States today, in terms of quality outcomes, we're in the lower half of the 20 most industrialized nations in the world. In fact, when it comes to life expectancy and childhood mortality, we're at the bottom. A girl born in the United States today will live seven years fewer than if she's born in Seoul, Korea today. Seven years fewer. Hundreds of thousands of people die every year from failures in prevention, avoidable medical errors, and preventable complications of chronic disease, like my dad. If you look Maybe at how care- Stop and just say a word, Robbie, if you don't mind about your dad, because that was a very powerful introduction to this book. Sure, so, so my dad was an amazing man. Uh, he was the son of two immigrant parents. He worked his way through college and dental school. In World War II, he could have stayed behind US lines, taking care of incoming soldiers. Instead, he volunteers to join the 101st Airborne, the paratroopers. He paratroops into um, France on D-Day, behind Germany lines. He's captured, and he brings his whole troop back safely by escaping in the middle of the night, going through forests. He was a member of what we call the greatest generation. He was a man of remarkable, remarkable energy. He rarely slept six hours a night. And then one day, he got very tired. It never happened before. He saw his physician, and the physician diagnosed what's called a hemolytic anemia. His body's breaking down his own red blood cells. The place where red cells get broken down is in the spleen. The spleen's like a filter. And after trying some medications to avoid having to do surgery, his physicians had to take out his spleen. His anemia gets better, but the spleen as a filter has other things about it. 
not only filters the red blood cells, it also filters certain bacteria, particularly one called the pneumococcus. The pneumococcus has a capsule around that makes the normal body's ability to fight it much, becomes much more resistant to the ability of the body to fight it. Every doctor who cared for him, he had great doctors. He spent half his year in Florida, half his year in New York, and every doctor knew he needed the vaccine against the pneumococcus. But the ones in Florida thought the ones in New York had given it to him. The ones in New York thought the ones in Florida had given it to him. Primary care thought specialty care, specialty care, primary care. And he never had it done. One day he's out visiting my brother and me. My brother's the chief of anesthesia at Stanford. Has dinner at my house, goes to my brother's house to sleep. My brother wakes up early the next morning for rounds. There's my father unresponsive on the floor. Takes him to the hospital. My dad spends four days in coma, three weeks in the hospital. He ultimately gets discharged, but he dies in the end, from complications. Diagnosis, of course, pneumococcal septicemia. Completely preventable if the physicians around him had cared, had worked together as one, if they shared a common electronic health record. They all knew what he needed. But he, like 200,000 people that year, died from a preventable medical error. So if I go back to what I was saying about the psychological aspects of the book. Here the United States is last or next to the last in almost every category. Hundreds of thousands of people dying every year from failures in prevention, from complications that could have been avoided from chronic disease, from medical errors. And yet, if you go ask your listeners, how good is the medical care in the United States? I'm going to tell you that the majority will say it's the best in the world. So here we have this contradiction. We have on one hand, the data says we lag the other nations and this view that we're the best in the world. So I looked into the psychological literature and I looked into the most modern brain scanning studies. I mean, think back to when people were in college and they studied the Stanford prison experiment. This is Philip Zimbardo takes normal students Half of them get assigned to be jailers. They get aviator sunglasses. The other half, jailees. They uh, get uh, OR cops with numbers instead of names. Within 48 hours, 48 hours, almost no time at all, the jailers see the jailees as hardened criminals, as dangerous. They inflict debasing punishments. They have to clean the toilets with their bare hands. The jailees see the jailers as sadists. They board up the doors. Now think about it. Logically, everyone knows that this other group are students like themselves. They saw them at a party, they would fraternize with them. But in this context, they see them differently. Context shapes perception, and perception changes behavior. So to go back to the question you're asking, sort of how do these things happen? They happen in two ways. The first way, and part of why I wrote Mistreated, was to have it touch the patient in all of us. Because I believe that once patients understand that, no, you're not getting the best health care in the world. It's actually you're risking your life. They're going to start to want more. When they start to realize, look at convenience. You know, patients, you'd never bank someplace if the only place you get money out of the ATM was at your local branch. You want to get the money everywhere in the world, and yet you accept the fact that the computer in your doctor's office probably doesn't communicate with anyone else's computer. You never use a financial institution that made you go there 
to be able to get the information on your account, and yet you drive to the office to have a kindergarten form filled out for your child. You'd never it's amazing how well we got trained by the healthcare yeah. system. Because this perception, the context, medicine is, is worrisome. Medicine is your life. The last thing you can do as a patient is challenge the system. You might actually suffer. It's not conscious. This is a subconscious shift in perception. You can see it on brain scans. You can watch the amygdala, the fear center become activated, and then the perception center change. You accept it because that's how our brains have evolved. And so the first thing is patients need to start demanding it. But I think the way they're going to demand it is through their employers. And when an employer says, five years from now, we're only going to allow physicians to care for our patients who are working together in, in an integrated group. And they have to have a comprehensive electronic health record. And they have to be willing to take care of a population of patients and be judged on the quality of outcomes. And we'll give you five years to organize it. It's going to start to happen, I believe. The second thing about it is we change the context of medicine in that way. When doctors are integrated, they work together as one. All of a sudden, these other people are not competitors. They're on the same team. And they're more likely to help out each other, to coordinate the care, to collaborate, to provide care that makes sure the patient doesn't fall through the cracks. And when they're paid on a prepaid basis, all of a sudden, prevention looks much more important. All of a sudden, avoiding complications becomes much more important. All of a sudden, avoiding secondary complications from chronic illness. All these things become more important when you shift that perception, when you shift that context, which changes the perception. And when you have that medical information right in front of you and it's presented to you, now all of a sudden you take action, whether you're in primary care and specialty care. And when I think when all those things happen, Pat, you're absolutely right. The change right now is minuscule, incremental. It's never going to get there. But I think if we change the entire context of medicine and it's demanded by patients and by employers, I believe we could get there in five years. So... I, I'm going to push back a little bit because um, when I was a, a permanente physician executive myself, I actually spent five years working with General Motors, who at the time was the largest private purchaser of healthcare in the world. And we tried to do a lot of the things. I had a whole team of permanente people who worked with me, and we tried to do for GM exactly what you described. And it turned out that the purchasers were not any braver than any other stakeholder. And it was very hard to get them to focus on getting the work done. So my question to you is, is how sure are you that the purchasers, that the employers who, who are only providing what, less than half the care now, are, are, the, are the focal point or the tipping point for making this happen? I believe that you get to a breaking point. And if you look at every industry, the legacy players have never wanted to change until at some point someone came and disrupted them. And I think the same thing happens in healthcare. You can afford to pay more and more and more if you're a purchaser up to a point where you can't pay anymore. If you look today, you know, out-of-pocket expenses now. Uh, if you go back 2010, seven years ago, 25% of people had a high deductible program. Now it's 40%. People are paying five, six, seven thousand dollars a year out of pocket. How much more can they pay? 
So I think that there is a breaking point that happens exactly when it's going to be, I don't know. The interesting part to me, and this is something I wrote about in USA Today, is that I believe that the breaking point or the disruption will come actually not from the American healthcare system. And I don't even think it's going to come from the Googles of the world or the Facebooks or one of the high-tech companies. I think it's going to come from offshore. Debbie Shetty is a friend of mine. Debbie Shetty is a U.S.-trained heart surgeon who runs 11 heart hospitals in India. If you ask Debbie, by the way, he was Mother Teresa's physician, so we're talking about a pretty prominent man. But you ask Debbie, what do you do? He says, I set a price for human life. You're a heart surgeon. What do you mean you set a price for human life? He said, every morning I come to work and there's 30 moms lined up outside the door with 30 babies in their arms. They've all been wor all worked up. They all need surgery. I talk to them each for a few minutes. And then I explain, because only 10% of the people in India have insurance, that they have to pay $1,800 for the surgery. Those families that can borrow the money, their child lives. Those that can't. The child dies. He said, if I can get the cost down to 1500 or even 1200 I will have saved more children. I will have raised the value of human life. By the way, when I was there, I visited him last Thanksgiving. The day I was there, his team, his multiple teams, did 37 heart surgeries. More heart surgeries than any hospital in the United States does in maybe a month. You can imagine the results are really good. By the way, one of the surgeries he did that day was a heart transplant. So we're talking about sophisticated surgery with tremendous outcomes that are as good as the best in the United States. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because I don't think people can go to India. But Debbie is building a hospital right now in the Cayman Islands. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Cayman Islands. Beautiful. No, but I, I have miles. friends who have visited Debbie's uh, hospital there and have told yeah. me how wonderful it is. Beautiful. It's a white sand beach hospital. It's an island of 50,000 people who's bu building a 2,000-bed hospital. 10 or 20 of the beds are for the Caymans. Everyone else is the fact that Miami is a one-hour plane flight away. And no one should make any mistakes about it. The technology he has there is better than anything we have in the United States. It's a computer on a tablet. You walk to the patient's bed. The data comes up. You walk to the next patient, the first data drops away, and the second appears. You take it one mile outside the hospital, all the data is wiped out. You look at the speed to responsiveness. In the United States, it probably takes an hour, not for a patient whose heart stops, but for someone who has a significant problem, blood pressure drops, oxygen drops, something significant, we're an hour, he's probably he's seven or eight minutes. He monitors it every day. He reports out, this is amazing to me, to every, not just physician, but employee, everyone in his hospital, from the person who cleans the floors to the neurosurgeon, how they did on a profit and loss basis the day before. Now, why does he do that? Because he translates that into free surgeries that can be provided. And by the way, if you go there in the middle of the night, what you'll see are these screens with video where the physicians in India are looking at all the patients in his hospital because it's the daytime, 12 hours difference, and vice versa when the people in India are in the night, the people in the Cayman Islands. This is advanced, sophisticated medicine, not provided in the Caymans for $1,800, but for half the price of the United States. At some point, the employers in the United States are going to say, let me get this straight. I'm paying more money, twice as much, 
for quality that's not as good, for technology that's not as sophisticated, why am I not sending my people offshore? So let me, let, yeah. let me interrupt here because sure, please. medical tourism has been around for a long time. Even when I was working with GM, we were aware of places, not the Cayman Islands, it wasn't built yet, but there were places in, in India, other systems, places in Thailand uh, that were offering high quality, lower cost care than what we get in the United States. And yet the medical tourism industry hasn't really taken off. Employers haven't really embraced it. Um, and, and the other question that I have that I think is a little bit related to this is we have this huge industry of people who are making a ton of money, not just the legacy players that you mentioned, but, you know, the cardiologists, the cardiovascular surgeons, you know, all the people who are delivering the pieces of care and generating their income. Uh, how are you going to, how, how do you see a transition taking place from this embedded industry, the legacy players that you talked about, some legacy players that, that, you, that you haven't talked about, and being able to transform it? Do you, do you think that the employers will, will unmask send people to Debbie Shetty type hospitals? Or, or do you think they'll just say, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to, you know, they don't really want to go overseas. We'll just, you know, keep on, we'll keep on paying. How do you, how do you see the transition? Because to me, that's the part we've been stuck on is that we, we all have these fantastic ideas, but then when the reality sets in is, is, is that there are so many people who are making so much money off of the way things are now, how do you get it started? Uh, you're absolutely right, Pat. So I teach in the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and what we study there is disruption. Kodak said the same thing. Kodak wouldn't give up traditional film for digitalist cameras until one day everything changes. Or um, you look at borders. Who's going to buy online until Amazon basically drove them out of business? So this is the story of disruption. The legacy players are never going to want to change. At some point, and this is my hope, it's why I wrote the book, because I believe we need to change because I love American medicine. Right now, one of the groups that's suffering the most are doctors. Doctors are not happy in the United States. A third of them say they are depressed. Half of them say they wouldn't send their children to, uh, advise their children to go into medicine. There are over 400 suicides a year. The system is broken. It's not bad doctors, not poorly trained or unmotivated. It's a broken system, and it's, I'm hoping. And by the way, the odds are that every other industry has gotten disrupted. They haven't changed in the long run. But to go back to the question you're really posing, you're absolutely right. Medical tourism has been around for a long time. By the way, most of the technology we're talking about whether it's filmless camera or electrical cars, they were also around for about 20 years before something happened to disrupt that industry. So let me give you an example. I live in Silicon Valley. To San Jose and San Francisco, it's 50 miles. There are 10 hospitals that do heart surgery in that 50-mile range. Three of them do fewer than 300 cases a year. That means that at least 65 days of the year, they're paying people who are doing no work. Try and think of another business that could be that inefficient to say nothing about what's the quality like if they're averaging one surgery a day. Take those people into a different context. Take them out of their job, the hospital administrators, out of their job and bring them into my classroom. 
give them a test that says, what would you recommend? And everyone will come up with the right solution. Take the three low volume sensors, combine them into a single sensor. You raise your volume by three times, your quality goes up, your cost drops significantly, and not a single one can do it. Why? Because the context of the medicine says if they close that cardiac unit, they're going to lose their jobs. So we know that they're not going to change voluntarily. They're going to do it because someone, an employer, says to them, if you don't do something to get your volume up and your cost down, you're going to have none of our patients. So it takes enough of that force to be able to get them to change. Now, the question that you keep posing is, when will the employers demand it? And they're going to demand it at the point they can't continue to compete in a global world. But now, wait, they Robbie, right but, they have a, yeah. but they have an alternative now, depending on what happens with healthcare reform. They didn't do it when we brought on the ACA, but the ACA did offer them an alternative to say to their, their people, you don't have to go without health insurance. You can go on to the exchange and get your health insurance. How do you know that the purchasers won't say, you know what? I'm GM. I make cars. I don't do health insurance. I'm just going to, you know, get out of that business and, and, and let people get their health care somewhere else. How, how are you going to keep them in the game and engaged? So there's two parts to it. The first one is there's such a major tax advantage to them right now to stay in there because they can deduct that cost, which means they really are able to pay their worker $2 for every dollar of benefit created. So they have a financial incentive to stay there. But if they don't do it, then the employee, the employee will be in the same place, and he or she is going to find themselves with a huge out-of-pocket. Now, why do, why do people not now go to these lower-cost places? Because there's no financial incentive to do so. Because by the time you pay your deductible, everything else is now going to be covered. And so you don't really care whether it costs $60,000 or $20,000 because you're responsible for the first 5000 but as soon as you actually have more accountability for that, you're going to start to ask the questions. You're going to start this comparative shop. And especially once you start to understand the relationship between volume and quality outcomes. What people don't understand is that physicians who don't do very much surgery don't get great results. You take the minimally invasive surgery. You look at people getting a hysterectomy. There are two ways to do it. You can do a long abdominal incision. Or you can do it through a, that's actually two, not one, but telescope. It's called the laparoscope. And in doing it through the laparoscope, the beauty of it is rather than spending days in the hospital and weeks recovering from the incision, you're back up on your feet very, very quickly and able to return to your normal life. The problem is that working through that little incision is more difficult than working through a big incision. The key is doing enough volume. When I ask women OBGYN surgeons, how many cases do you personally want the physician operating you to have done as a minimum? They all tell me 25, 30, 35. And yet half the physicians in the United States doing this operation do fewer than 10 a year. But the patients don't know. And the when patients they don't know. know and even a sophisticated patient, because you had two examples in your book. One is really well known, which is President Clinton, who chose to go to uh, both the center for the evaluation of his blocked coronary, coronary artery and then to a surgical center for his operation. And both were ranked very low in terms of outcomes. And yet, 
he was not just president of the United States, but he was president of the United States who, who kind of oversaw the Clinton healthcare reform. I mean, so he was not unsophisticated. How are we going to get the average guy to get that relationship between, you know, volume and, and, and outcome? You're absolutely right. In fact, he picked the, not only the institution with the worst outcome, the surgeon with the worst outcome, and guess what he got? A major complication. So <laughs> That's right. But you know it retrospectively. It's the education of people. And that's, again, where I think that businesses could start demanding this kind of information, trying to understand how many surgeries. Now, we have groups that do it. LeapFrog does it and some other places evaluate high volume. We have places that it's reported. But it's very hard to do at the individual level because the numbers are so relatively small, particularly in terms of the quality outcomes that, re that result. It's why I'm such a big believer in large multi-specialty medical groups. It's why I lead CAP, the Council of Accountable Physician Practices, the Mayos, the Geisingers, the Kaisers. Because when you start to have those kinds of integrated organizations, you start to get data that demonstrates the quality outcomes. When you look at the National Committee for Quality Assurance, a thousand programs, who's at the very, very top? These CAP kind of groups, the ones that are able to deliver this higher value consistently. And now when you look down under the covers, what do you see? You see that they're integrated. These physicians work together as one. They see the other doctors very differently. I remember when my parents were in the hospital, you would have doctor after doctor and a specialty after specialty come by. They'd write notes in the chart to communicate, but they never spoke to each other. They didn't coordinate with each other. One might write a medication that contradicted another medication. There was no level of the collaboration and cooperation that is needed. And if they don't have that comprehensive electronic record, then how do they know what the other person did? And when they write a medication, how do they know it doesn't contradict and say nothing about the, re the redundant costs? And I'll go back to the same theme of context. And the context is true for the doctor. It's true for the patient. If you don't have a, a payment mechanism, a reimbursement that rewards you for outcomes rather than volume, it's always easier simply to do more rather than doing better. And for the patients, I think the patients are going to have to understand that they need to take charge of their health care. And the employer on their behalf has to take charge of it. We see some of that already, by the way. I mean, you've seen the data on uh, total joints in the state of California. The numbers used to vary from about $25,000 to $130,000. Uh, when the uh, Pacific Business Group on Business looked at outcomes, there was no difference between the 30, 40, 50, 60, up to $120,000. Exact same outcomes. They said we're only going to pay $30,000. Guess what happened the next day? Everyone lowered their price to $30,000. The problem was they cost shifted onto some other part of the delivery. And that's why, as I say, when the businesses have to lead this process and put it all together as a single premium that's being paid for everything, not the insurance level, but the delivery system level, and require that physicians, whether they're in a group like a Kaiser Permanente or a Mayo or Intermountain Health, or whether they're in the community working together virtually, coming together taking care of a population with the most sophisticated electronic health record and with the most up-to-date mobile and video capability, now you start to get the opportunity to really compare outcomes, and I'm hoping in that process to transform healthcare. Now, one of the things I also do is I write a blog for Forbes, and next week I'm going to be writing about the fact there's a price to be paid. The question in medicine today is will it be paid by the patient 
will be paid by the provider of care. Right now, it's being paid by the patient. Hundreds of thousands of deaths, tremendous inconvenience, escalating cost. And my belief is that we need to transfer that and change the American healthcare system, but understand there will be losers. Those 10 heart hospitals, half of them may have to close. Small hospitals in every community, it's better to consolidate them for higher volume. A lot of the care that's being provided by specialists, the number of cases they're doing, they may have to stop doing the cases so that others with better ability and better outcomes can take over. So far, we've been unable to have that conversation nationally. I wrote Mistreated to start that happening to try to connect with the patient and all of us. So... I am totally on board. I, I don't know if I told you, but I am a Kaiser Permanente Northern California patient. And I recently got diagnosed with a, I became an interesting patient, which is something I always tell all my friends you never want to have happen to you, diagnosed with a, a rare uh, inflammatory disease of my eye. And had the experience, the Kaiser Permanente experience of having my care across specialists with my PCP, totally coordinated with everybody having, including myself, having access to all of my records. So I am absolutely on board. The problem is the rest of the country doesn't have that experience and, and, and how we're going to drive it. And I think this will really have to lead us to the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about because it has to lead to the politics. Um, my experience with the employers spending, you know, I was on the leapfrog board. I spent six years with General Motors. You know, we really tried to leverage the uh, the employers to get things done, and we weren't able to do it. People haven't actually talked a lot about how you could leverage the patients, but there is this burgeoning empowered patient movement that may be an interesting leverage point. But at the end of the day, the amount of money that that is going into maintaining the status quo is actually directed at our politicians, right? It's directed at our leaders. It's directed at the people who make the decisions of whether we're going to have this kind of healthcare coverage or that kind of healthcare coverage, whether they would be willing to say to a community hospital, you have to close or you have to merge your services with someone else. Those things aren't going to happen voluntarily. So um, I'm not going to ask you actually to speculate about what's going to happen with the Senate bill. Um, we do know that Leader McConnell is still trying to wrangle enough votes to get this thing passed. And President Trump said over the weekend, he's sitting in his Oval Office with pen in hand, ready to sign it. Um, I, I'm going to assume it doesn't get the votes because, in my opinion, it, it, it fails everybody. And that we may finally get around to dress, addressing the things that need to be repaired in the Affordable Care Act. Now, I don't know if that's the end game for you, something like the Affordable Care Act or, or even an intermediary step, but it may be the intermediary step that we're facing. And so what I want to know, Robbie, because you probably know more about healthcare and systems than just about anyone else in the country. If you had a chance to advise the powers that be on how to fix the ACA, what would be your top three or four priorities and equally important how would you get started and how would you stage it? How would you make it happen? Let me start with the fact that coverage is important. So I don't want anyone listening to not understand that. If you don't have health care insurance, you can't get great health care. 
if that coverage is unaffordable uh, because the out-of-pocket is so great, you certainly won't get health care. And if it doesn't cover the things that you need, then you can have coverage that you can afford, but you don't get any, what you really require. And so now you're back into a, a system that fails to deliver health outcomes. Having said that, understand that any healthcare coverage system will fail unless we can, at the delivery system, transform care to get the increasing cost to match our ability to pay. Very little has been said in Washington, D.C. about the delivery system. I believe that the president, in addition to talking to insurance executives and hospital executives, should be talking to major physician leaders, ones who have a vision for how to change the delivery system to be able to raise the quality and lower the cost. And I believe that they are possible through coordination of care, the integration part, through technology, through physician leadership, through how we change to reimburse physicians. So the first place that I would start is looking at the delivery system and why I also think that's so important. And again, it's so interesting. I spent a lot of my time in Washington, D.C. I've spent a lot of my time since I wrote Mistreated on TV shows, US, um, CBS This Morning, on NPR. Everyone wants to talk about the ACA and that portion of the legislation. It's covering, we're talking 20, 25 million out of 300 million people. Most of American healthcare is not, now it's impacted by it, by some of the provisions around uh, exclusion for pre-existing conditions and some of the mandates. But most of the coverage issues being debated today is around a relatively small piece. I believe very strongly that as a nation, we have to understand that if we don't change how healthcare is delivered, and I want to include within that some of the drug issues we talked about earlier, the American healthcare system is going to collapse. And if it's going to collapse, what's going to happen is that we will devolve into a two-tier system. And I don't mean today's two-tier system. Today, the poor do not get the same care as everyone else. But I'm talking about one with the middle class, the working middle class, the Medicare patient can't get the access and care of the wealthy. And I think that that's the hard part for elected officials because they're still working on a two-year mind frame. And what you see in disruption, what you see in change is that it's much longer than that. But by the time you get to the end, you can't go back. Kodak couldn't go back. Borders couldn't go back. All the companies that went out of existence couldn't go back. And at that point, it's disruption that occurs. So I'll go back to the same theme, Pat. Context shifts perception, which changes behavior. If we don't change the context of how healthcare is delivered in the United States, we'll never change the perception about the right way to deliver that care. And if we don't change that, we're gonna find is that the behavior doesn't change. It's just too easy to be able to simply do more rather than to do better. And I talk a little bit about my father in the book at the end of his life. Uh, my father, as I said, didn't die during that first hospitalization. He died from complications. He had a bleed into his brain. My brother and I got a phone call in the middle of the night. We hopped on a plane first thing in the morning, flew to Florida where he was. We arrived there. He strapped down to the bed. There's a line of doctors out the door. The ENT doctor wants to do a tracheostomy. The GI doctor wants to put a feeding tube in place. 
The neurosurgeon would take out some bone out of his skull to allow his brain to expand. We look at the x-rays. We say, he's never getting better. He's never going to have the life that he wants. We thank his doctors very much. We tell them we don't want any more done. The next two and a half days, we never see a physician. In the fee-for-service world, there is no CPT coding, how doctors bill for compassion. In a fee-for-service world, you don't get reimbursed by coming and comforting a family in its time of greatest grief. These were physicians who were well-motivated when they started medical school, when they started residency. The American public needs to know that the system, the underlying context of American medicine is broken. The result is that our patients are being mistreated. And I'm hoping, and why I wrote the book, is that if our country can embrace the change that's possible, if we can accept all that we're missing and make it start to happening, that my father's death will have served the purpose. I hope everyone will read Mistreated. I encourage them to be able to tell me all about it. All the profits are going to go to charity, to Doctors Without Borders, so those in the world who can't get access can have it. But I believe, given all we spend in American healthcare today, Pat, we should be the best in the nation. We have the most motivated. We have hardworking, dedicated physicians. We have nurses. We have staff that simply want to do the best for our patients. And that needs to be the outcome. We need to change. The time for change is now. If we change, Pat, I think we can make it work. And if we don't change, the American people have to understand is that we will devolve into a system that we will not like. And I hope very much so that we don't do that. Well, I, I want to thank you very much for joining me today. This is Dr. Robert Pearl, the former executive director and CEO of Permanente Medical Group, who um, has written a fantastic book. I'm going to just say the title again, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Really Wrong. Uh, everybody ought to read it who cares about healthcare and Everybody ought to care, care about health care. And uh, I don't know, Robbie, maybe you can take some of the profits of the book and send a copy to everyone in Congress. That would be a good, would be a good idea. Uh, but any, at any, any rate, congressional person who would like a copy, I'd be pleased to send them one. Okay, fantastic. So I'm so delighted that you were able to join us. And I'm also um, very excited that someone with your knowledge and your passion is going to devote a big chunk of your career to trying to help transform um, what used to be, I think, uh, a great healthcare system uh, into one that could be one day again. So thank you very much, Dr. Robert Pearl. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is my plan for the next decade, and I welcome everyone to come aboard.